We are going to be looking today in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 20. And I want to be talking about a passage that is one of the perhaps greatest hits from the Old Testament. It's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the reason I want to take us there is because we're in this season of reset. We've been talking about prayer over the past few weeks. We've been praying together very diligently as a church. And so what I want to kind of focus in on today are things that can hijack our prayers and how to deal with them. And this passage is going to give us one very clear example of something that can derail our prayer life and also some very clear help and how to get back on track. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit's help and we'll get right to work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We ask that we would be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our mind, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Now, because we're parachuting into the middle of this passage today, let me say just a few introductory statements to bring us up to speed at least a bit. So in the Old Testament, we have the story, the chronicles of the nation of Israel. Very tiny, insignificant nation. God called out for his own purpose to be a light to the nations. And if you're familiar with the story, it is a spiritual roller coaster at best. They follow God, they abandon the ship. They follow God, they walk away from God. But God loves them. They're His people. He pursues them. But where we catch them today is in one of those valleys. They have walked away from many of their commitments and basically have become what we would call syncretistic. That they want to have their worship of God, but they also want to worship the gods of the nations. They want to try to have it both ways. And so God raises up this man, Elijah, as his mouthpiece, as his prophet, and he calls out to the nation in very clear and stark language, come back to me, look who your God is. That being said, let's pick it up right here in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Ahab is the king at the time, a very wicked king, quite frankly, is it you, troubler of Israel? Now, you know, with a start like that, this is going to be quite an exchange. And he answered, this being Elijah, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So right off the bat, that's the indictment. Verse 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So let's get the picture here of the spiritual decay that Israel is involved in. They have 850 false prophets, and they have one prophet for the true God. And what it means here when he says, who eat at Jezebel's table, Jezebel, uh, who was the queen, was basically funding and taking care of all of these false prophets. And so the, the, the institutional corruption was visible from the top down. Verse 20, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Now that phrase really encapsulates where the nation of Israel is at this point. That the, the language that, that the Hebrew that's used here could actually be translated like this: that how long will you limp about on two crutches? 
And what he's talking about there is you got this one crutch of the worship of the true God and this other crutch uh, of all these false prophets, and you're trying to have it both ways. You're trying to have your cake and eat it too. And this is very similar to what uh, Joshua says when he says, as for me and my house, I'm going to follow the Lord. You need to choose this day who you will serve. That is Elijah saying the same kind of thing to them. And in fact, he says almost that exact phrase in the next part of the verse. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So through the prophet's words, they hear the significance of the situation that they're in. Verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it to pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire... He is God. So this is the throwing down of the gauntlet. I grew up in the 80s. This is like that scene in the Rocky movie where he fights the big Russian, where Rocky steps into the ring and they are nose to nose, and you know that it is about to go down. And the people knew that as well. And then it says, The people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you were many. Call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And so they took the bull that was given, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around on the altar that they had made. Now the language here could also be translated, they did their lame dance. Now, I got to admit, that's a little bit funny because we live in a world of all these TikTok dances and you can go to Target and you can see kids moving around like this with no music. This is the ancient version of that. They're trying to get their false gods attention and they're trying to do it through this quote unquote lame dance. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And if we're going to be honest, this looks like what it is. What he's basically doing is he's making fun of their crying out to this false entity that's not going to answer. There are some anecdotal stories that, that Baal would sit and muse, kind of like the thinker, He's saying that maybe he's off doing that. When he says relieving himself, that's exactly what he looks like. He says, maybe your false God has gone to the bathroom and he can't hear you right now. Or perhaps he's on a journey or he's asleep and he has to be awakened. So keep crying out. Elijah is poking at them to try to show the folly and the idiocy of them crying out to the false God. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. So they are now hurting themselves to try to get their false God's attention. 
because they thought it would matter. But look what happens in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the uh, tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. That's about 13 quarts of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled also the trench with water. So let's picture this in our minds. The altar has been rebuilt. He's heaped up the stones, the symbolic message of the faithfulness of God over all these years. Now he makes this sacrifice because they were under the sacrificial system at this time. And he does all these things at great length to put this situation in a position where there would be no chance of any fire breaking out on this altar. It's muddy. It's bloody. It's an absolute mess. And the only way that the fire could take place is if the one true God intervened. Now let's see what happens. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, and then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water as much was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And he seized them, and he brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So friends, when you take all this together, what does this show us? It shows us that there is one true God, and He alone is worthy of our praise and our glory. This one prophet stood and proclaimed the truth of God. He proclaimed the supremacy of God. He set up this situation where only God could make His way known. And what did these people see? They saw what only God could do. They saw what we pray for every week, every day. What only God can do. And friends, this is such a help to us. It helps us in the sense that it reminds us of the greatness and the supremacy and the uniqueness and the power and the might and the strength of the God of the Bible. Friends, that is what we need when we pray. 
We don't need the picture of a small God in our minds, a God who might not be able to help, a God who might not be able to do anything on our behalf. We need the true, authentic, great picture of God that is given to us in the Bible. That's what this passage shows us. We also are helped by the fact that we see Him do what no one else could do. They had the best that they had to offer And what did they get when they prayed? Crickets. Because there was no other God out there to answer their prayers. But these people that prayed to the true God, Elijah leading them in this way, they got to see the real thing. Friends, that's the kind of picture of God that we need when we pray. One of extreme power, extreme strength, matchless glory. Is that who you have in your mind when you pray? Or is he just someone feeble? Maybe he can help, maybe he can't. Friends, we need to let this passage help us by reminding us of the greatness and the glory of our God. Now, this passage also helps us in another way because it shows us one of the things that can hijack our prayers. It shows us idolatry. And it shows us idolatry in the very purest sense. These people had literally made false gods, idols, and they were worshiping them. And they had this whole slew of prophets, some for Baal, some for Asherah, this entire system devoted to this false worship. And they were giving their very lives, their time, their money in the service of these false gods. And what did it yield them? Nothing but pain, nothing but heartbreak. And if they had stayed on this path, it would have been eternal destruction. And friends, though we might not like to admit it, we can be guilty of the same kind of behavior today. Now, I dare say that any of us who are watching this, we don't have idols set up made of metal, made of gold that we bow down and worship. But just like the Israelites, we can move in and out of this type of syncretistic behavior. Worship God, but then we also worship other things. And so this passage helps us by putting the true picture of God before us, but also putting a picture of the nature of ourselves. By calling us back to the truth, just like Elijah called those people back. So I want to spend just a few moments talking about these idols that pop up in our lives and also close our time by talking about what we need to do about it. And I want to look to a couple of guys here that have helped me on my own journey in understanding this and helping others understand it. We'll look first to Tim Keller, and he defines idolatry in the way we would engage it today like this. Anything that is more important to us than God. Anything that absorbs our hearts and imagination more than God. Anything that we look to to give us what only God can give. Anything that we would look in our heart of hearts and say, if I just had that, then I would feel like everything was okay. That my life would have meaning. That this would have value. That I would feel significant and secure. And it can be all kinds of things. It can be tangible things like houses and cars. It can be more nebulous things like my job and what it provides. 
It could be your favorite hobby. It could be even your own family if things get out of balance. Anything that we allow to take the first place in our life that should be reserved for God alone. Those things can become idols to us. And you might say, Dustin, but how do I figure out what those are? Well, Keller puts us in the right direction, and then I think a man named David Pallison gives us some further insight that will help us. He asks these kinds of questions. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken the title to your heart's functional trust? What do you become preoccupied with? Where does your highest loyalty, service, and fear and delight go? To whom or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What is the most important thing in your life? Where do you look to to make yourself an acceptable person? These are the kinds of questions that tease out the idolatry in our hearts and our lives. And my hope is that as we're talking about this now, that the wheels are beginning to turn in your mind. That you are beginning to say, man, here's a few things where I know I'm off track on this. And here's a few things that I know I need to think more about later. This is the kind of message where I think the Holy Spirit begins to speak to us in the moment, but He continues to speak to us beyond this moment that we continue to ruminate, we continue to marinate, we continue to discuss and, and unpack with our community group and with other smaller groups and really try to get to the heart of what's going on here so that we might do something effective with it. And that's where I want to lead us now. So once we remind ourselves of who the true God is, we also see how we can slip into worshiping these false gods and not even realize it, what do we do once we figure out what's going on? Well, there's plenty that I could say about this, but I want to give you one simple phrase that I hope is both memorable and portable. And it's this, that we repent, we replace, and we repeat. We repent, we replace, we repeat. Repent, replace, repeat. Now, what do I mean by repent? Well, in the purest sense, to repent is to make a U-turn. It's to make a 180. It's to look at whatever we're doing wrong. Let's say we're, you know, too much value on a job, too much value on financial security, whatever. We recognize and agree with God, hey, I'm off track here. And Lord, I need you to help me turn the ship around. Let, let, we need to go in a different direction. I want to be all in for Jesus. And so that begins... When we become Christians, there's a one-time moment when we repent with a capital R, if you want to think of it like that. And some of us who are watching this today, this may be the Lord speaking to you and calling you in that direction. And if it is, then this would be my encouragement to you, that you would not ignore that. That you would hear the good news of Jesus through the story of Elijah, and that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. That you would repent with a capital R, so to speak. We'll talk more about that in the future. But also, this is the kind of thing that we need to repent with a lowercase r, if you will. 
that the, the ongoing repentance every day. Martin Luther, when he was asked about this concept, he said, all of life is repentance. We are always turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Now, we're not getting saved over and over and over and over. The Bible's clear about that. But we are always in the process of turning from our idolatry and turning to Christ. But that's where it all begins. We have to repent. We got to own it. We got to turn to Christ in the midst of our trouble. Now, but we don't just simply turn. We also have to replace the false worship with true worship. And what do I mean by that? Well, I want you to think of it like this. Every year, thousands of people, maybe more than that, say, this is the year I'm going to lose weight. I'm just going to stop eating too much. But what they've found in study after study after study <coughs> is that it's not enough simply to stop eating too much food. You have to replace those thought patterns. You have to replace behaviors that got you in trouble in the first place. And the same is true spiritually. So we want to replace false worship with true worship. And part of what I'm getting at here is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4. He talks about himself as the only source of true satisfaction, the only well that never runs dry. Jesus says to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. <clears throat> the water that I will give him becomes in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So functionally and practically for us, this looks like taking advantage of all the means of grace that God has given us. That we immerse ourselves not in just learning a little bit about the Bible, but truly studying the Word of God. Because when we interact with the Word of God at a deep level, that's where we see truths like this. That's where we unearth who He is and what He's done. And we begin to see the greatness and the glory of God made most clear to us in Christ. So we replace false worship with true worship by changing habits, by beholding God, by laying hold of who He is in Christ. Now, more specifically with that, the way I like to talk about this here sometimes is that we apply the gospel. And here's what I mean by that, that we think about those particular truths and particular doctrines that are very gospel focused, that will change and warm and shape our hearts in such a way that we desire the things of God more and more. Let me give you a couple of examples. So when we think about the goodness of Christ, and we think about all those doctrines that go with it, we think about the fact that we who were once strangers and aliens and orphans have been adopted into the family of God. That's only possible because of Jesus. We think about those, uh, all of us who the name, named the name of Christ, we were born in sin, we sinned on top of it, we had no hope without God in this world, and He came along and He called us to Himself. He justified us. He gave us all the riches of Christ. When we meditate on those things, it changes our hearts. It melts our hearts. It makes us desire the things of God. When we go further and we think about the church, God has given us a gospel family to be on mission together that is unlike any other group 
you can find anywhere else in the world. And when we meditate on that and we think about the support and the spiritual resource that we have around us, those kinds of things melt and shape our hearts, remind us that we're not alone, and help us in this process of turning from false worship and walking in true worship. You get what I'm saying there? So we repent and then we replace. And then we also think of things like this. It changes how we pray. It changes how we pray. Because if we go to God, first acknowledging the greatness of who He is, and then also confessing where we've been off track and how we've sought these other little gods with a little g, it causes us to come with a sense of humility, but not despair. It causes us to come with a sense of God is great, I am not great, but His mercy toward me is so great and so immeasurable. And so then as we begin to pray and we begin to ask for things, we pray more in line with what Jesus has taught us over the last few weeks. For His kingdom to come, for His will to be done, for His glory to be known among all the nations. So this process of repent and replace it changes everything about us. It causes our prayers not to be hijacked, but to be highlighted with the glory of God and a focus on Him and what He wants to do in this world. Now, finally, what's this last piece here? It's that of repeat. Repent, replace, repeat. And what I'm getting at here is that this becomes the way that we live that we live in a world that is literally filled with idols. They're everywhere. They don't look like the Baals, but they're everywhere. John Calvin talked about our hearts, and he said it like this, that our heart is basically a never-ceasing idol factory. That our predisposition is to take a good thing and to make it a God thing. And we got to constantly be aware of that and constantly be appropriately evaluating and pointing back to God. So we learn this practice, but we never stop practicing it. This is just as natural as breathing. And so we want to move in the direction that this passage helps us to go. So let's wrap it up. What have we learned today? Well, I hope we've learned a little bit more about the greatness and the uniqueness and the awesome power of God. We've seen something that only He can do. And we've learned about our propensity that we are just like those Israelites in so many ways, but we've also been reminded that there's hope for us. And friends, where does that hope come from? It only comes from Jesus Christ. Now, just a bit ago, as I was talking to you, and I talked about repentance with a capital R, there's a certain group of us that is watching this today that you've never met Jesus. You may know about Him, you may have heard about Him, but you've never come to the place in your life where you transferred the leadership of your life over to Him. And this would be my encouragement to you, that you would admit that you're a sinner, that you would believe in the perfect life, the substitute's death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, and that you would commit your life to follow Him. And if that is stirring in your heart today, you can do that by just praying and crying out to God. 
and shoot us an email at refugefranklin at gmail.com and we want to help you take the next step on your spiritual journey. And for all the rest of us who've already made that turn, this would be my question to you today. As we ponder all these things in this passage, what is it specifically that God is saying to you? How is He reminding you of His greatness, His power, His uniqueness, how there are certainly things that only He can do? How does that speak to you? How does this passage make God more alive to you than maybe He was before we began? Secondly, let me also ask, as we talk about idolatry and these small g things that can capture our mind's attention and our heart's affection. What is the Holy Spirit illuminating to you there? Right now, even in this moment, what is He drawing out of you like a poison so that you might be healed? Friend, pay attention to that. And finally, do you see the beauty of Jesus, even though He wasn't ever mentioned in this passage specifically? Because here's the reality. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. He came and he brought a message of the one true God in himself. He showed us what God looks like in flesh, in action, in the world. Jesus is also the true and better Israel. That Jesus himself succeeded every place that Israel failed. And because of that immense and matchless success, He can help us with our failure. In addition, Jesus' compassion toward us, even in the midst of our failures and sin, there's no one else like Him. And so as we go to Him today in prayer, we need to go knowing that He is kind, that He is with us, and that He is shaping us and changing us through His Word, by His Spirit, to make us more like Him. So friends, let's go to this God now, and let's ask for what only He can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the faithfulness of Your servant, Elijah. Lord, we thank You that You revealed Yourself in such a profound way that they literally saw something that only you could do. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that we have seen it as well, that we have seen it at Calvary, that we have seen it in the empty tomb. We have seen it time and time again in all of the little subplots and narratives of our lives where you answer prayers and the only explanation is you. So, Lord, I pray that the truth of this passage and the the supremacy of who you are, the insufficiency of false idols, and the greatness of your glory, I pray that it would stir us and fuel us and cause us to pray, cause us to pray in the ways that we learned last week with boldness and perseverance, knowing that you're a father, knowing that you will answer us. And Lord, that you would continue to answer the prayers of this church. Lord, we pray for wisdom as we seek to come out of this COVID season. 
We pray for provision in both people and finances, and we need a new facility next year, Lord. You know all of that. We pray that we would continue to put it before you. We also pray for all of the things that are happening in each person's life. Lord, all the different complexities and all the different families, we bring all those needs to you. And Lord, we pray for what only you can do. Let us see it. Let refuge as a whole see it. And may we wonder and marvel in the process. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.